Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the greatest games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, with me is Jonathan Wilson and with us today is Joshua Law, Features Editor for Planet Football. Joshua, pleasure to have you on the pod. Thanks for having me, pleasure to be here. Today we go back to June 1992 for the Copa Libertadores final second leg which saw Sao Paulo beat Newell's old boys 3-2 on penalties after a 1-0 victory for Sao Paulo on the day which had tied the match 1-0 on aggregate. Joshua, why have you chosen this game? Um, I think it's a great story, more that surrounds the game than the game itself. There are, there are so many wonderful characters in this game who I suppose we'll talk about in more depth later, two future Brazilian World Cup winning captains, a man in Marcelo Bielsa who has a significant impact on football uh, in the future, Tele Santana, the great Brazilian uh, 1982 and 86 World Cup coach, um, loads of players in the Newell's team who go on, go on to become um, really big name managers um, and successful players in their own right. So I think there's a lot, um, it's not just this game, but it's the storylines that come from it. And um, the the sort of lasting impact it has in some ways on, on South American football. Um, and another interesting thing, I think that Sao Paulo team is a sort of turning point moment both in the Libertadores history and in world football history, that Sao Paulo team is probably the last club team that you could call the best club team in the world from South America. So I think that's a yeah. significant <laughs> element to it. Yeah, you've certainly caught our interest there, Joshua. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of characters and there's a lot of narrative there. Um Jonathan, yeah, a lot to go on uh, immediately when you think of these teams, these managers and, and these characters. What, what, what leaps to mind for you? Well, I mean, yeah, from my point of view, because obviously I, I look at it more from the Argentinian perspective, it, it's it's sort of the, in a way, it's the perfect end for the Bielsa story at Newell's. It wouldn't have felt quite right if it ended in victory. That's not what Bielsa's about. It's about <laughs> glorious failure, glorious defeat. Um and they'd had an extraordinary two years under Bielsa, and this is this is the end of of that. Um, but the fact it is, Tele Santana is somebody from a you know a, somebody who sort of represents even you know even when he was in charge of Brazil in '82, there was a sort of self conscious um, looking back, going back to Brazil's great traditions. And you, you, of course, you can argue about quite how how true that is. Um, and so it, it is. It is a meeting of, of two ages, of two great coaches, two very different ways of doing things, um, and, and and the fact that I, I think yeah, I mean Joshua alluded to it. The fact that this I think changes the Brazilian mentality to the competition is significant. That the Libertadores somehow had never quite been something Brazil took certainly post Santos and, and Pele, something they didn't take entirely seriously. Um, there's always been a priority to, to domestic affairs and state, even state competitions. But having won the double the previous year, São Paulo clearly did target the Libertadores, and that does then, I think, make the Libertadores a, um, a, a more credible competition. Even though this probably, you know, again, as Joshua says, probably was the last time a South American team could legitimately claim to be the best team in the world. 
Yeah, and Tele Santana is, is is an interesting one, perhaps not known by some football fans over here, but of course, you know, Brazil, they impressed in 82 and 86. But he's a very, very well-respected coach in Brazilian football history, Joshua. You know, where, where do you place him in that? Because some say he's, he's one of the most significant. Yeah, he didn't win the World Cup, and of course, Brazil's obsession with the World Cup, you would think that his, his um, reverence, if you like, would only go so far. I think that that's a very important part of this story as well, the fact that he had quote-unquote, failed in 1982 and 1986. And it is seen like that in Brazil. Losing at the World Cup is seen as failure. Um, however beautifully you do it, winning is the priority. Um, so that's an interesting element to this story in the sense that he gets some um, redemption, if you want to call it that. I suppose that's a bit of a strong word. but um, And then goes on to win the Club World Cup after this. Uh, that's uh, that's certainly a significant element, and yeah, he he is absolutely one of the the most important coaches. Um, um, but without this, I think though those World Cup defeats would be held more strongly against him, probably on his on his record. Yeah, and it was it was probably his best in. As a manager, I mean, like most South yeah. American managers, coached many teams throughout his career. Uh, but his longest and, and best in was at Sao Paulo, which were the final six years of his coaching career from 1990 to 1996. Interesting parallel between him and Bielsa, even though Bielsa's time at um, Newell's kind of ended shortly after this final. It was the start of Bielsa's coaching career and, and the end of um, Santana's and yeah, I mean that's worth saying, isn't it? Bielsa's yeah. only what 30, 36, 37 at the time of this mm-hmm. game, so he he is and he looks incredibly young on the touchline. He's <laughs> odd. He's odd. To well, see, he he looks weirdly like I don't know some kind of cross between Franz Beckenbauer and Billy Crystal. It's like <laughs> he, he he looks very different how he looks now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't. Yeah. I know what you mean. You can't imagine. You, you have to think, is that my... Oh, it is Bielsa. Yeah, interesting one. Um, but, of course, he'd, he'd worked for Newell's youth teams, Jonathan and Reserves and so on. And his career or his pathway into football was different to your average because he, he was a professional player, but very briefly. Yeah, he played four games for, for Newell's. Mm. So, he, you know, he comes... He doesn't come from a football background. He comes from a very academic background or, or a very political background. His grandfather was a judge... Famous, he has thirty odd thousand books in his house. Um, his father is a is a fan of Rosario Central. Bielsa, to be contrary, be, decides to be a Newell's fan. Joins Newell's. Uh, yeah, has ludicrous fallings out there because they won't let him keep his motorbike in the room. And, and I mean, <laughs> very classic Bielsa things. Um, Juan Simon, who 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 played with him then, uh, but then was. On the Boca team, that that, that Newell's, his Newell's beat in the um, the final of the the, the ninety to ninety one championship, which for that season, that season only, the winner of the Apertura played the winner of a Clausura. Um, and Juan Simon says that he yeah you know, he was really intense and really intelligent, but just not that good a footballer, and uh, you know centre back. So after four games, age twenty one, he he gives up. He goes to university, studies agronomy, and then when he's twenty five, he becomes coach of the Buenos Aires University team. Which he takes incredibly seriously in a way nobody's oh, yeah. done before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he looks at. I mean, I, I've seen various figures, but yeah, he he ended up picking a squad of twenty from over a thousand players, maybe as many as three thousand players, <laughs> um, and he's immensely successful because he 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 does it professionally. Uh, he calls all his players uh, usted rather than two, 
So he uses the polite form to them, which I think again is a very Bielsa thing to do. He's you know he's showing them respect. Um, yeah, it's very formal language for those who yeah. maybe don't understand Spanish. You know. And he, he, after a couple of years there, he 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 goes back to Newell's and, and gets a job in the youth setup there. He's realised that there's a there's a huge tendency in in Argentinian football to focus on on Buenos Aires and, and to a lesser extent La Plata, which is only about 35 miles from Buenos Aires. And there's a lot of players from the interior who are not getting picked up. So he he gets a map of Argentina, divides it into 5,000 squares, and because he hates flying, drives around them organizing trials. <laughs> um, which again, is, is that sort of preposterous attention to detail which comes to characterize him. And he, you know, he, he climbs through the ranks at... At um, at Newell's, and eventually is chosen to replace uh, Jose Udica, who who had taken Newell's to the final of Libertadores in '88, where they lost to Atlético Nacional um, of, of Colombia, um, and he takes over. And the sort of the players have they've seen what he's doing in the reserves, they've seen the results, they know that that the results are good, but they they have no, you know, I mean, I spoke to um, Juan Manuel Lop about this. And he was saying, kind of, you know, it was just like nothing we'd never known. The training just changed overnight. And we were all kind of, this, this can't be right. This can't be what he's been doing. And then gradually they realized, ah, yeah, it's, it's really tiring. It seems completely bonkers. Mm. And yet it seems to have made us all a lot better. Mm. Where were Newell's uh, in the footballing landscape in Argentina, Joshua, at the time? Because I'm guessing, like now, you know, not, not, not traditionally one of the big teams in the country. Um, football in Argentina is really very centralised around Buenos Aires, like like Jonathan said. So most of the really big successful teams, the big five, are all from Buenos Aires. Um, but Newell's had interrupted that that hegemony. If in the in the previous few years they'd won the title under Udica, they they'd gone to the Libertadores final. They'd become the first team from outside Buenos Aires to reach a Libertadores final. Um, the first Argentinian team from outside Buenos Aires. So, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, that's, yeah, counting La Plata has been part of Buenos Aires, which it is part yeah, of Buenos yeah. Aires part state. Part of Buenos Aires province, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So they, they'd they been quite disruptive. They, they weren't a big club in the sense that they weren't one of the big five, but they have a big following. They have a good-sized stadium. Their fans are loyal and uh, extremely passionate. Um and of course, then they came across this new coach with his new methods, who, who pushed them onto another level, um, almost immediately as well. When when you read what the players say, the the, the impact was so quick, um, and they talk a lot about what he brought. Um, the word a lot of the players use is gara, which is it means claw, literally means claw. Um, but it's a it's a word used to describe a sort of very uh, Uruguayan and Argentinian footballing trait, which is that never say die attitude, the the full commitment um, football. And and Newell's hadn't been renowned for that. Newell's had been a club that that did win sometimes, but played sort of um, attractive but not always particularly effective football. And, and that's what they felt their undoing had been against Nacional in the, in the 1988 uh, Libertadores final. 
Um, sorry. You know, after uh, please continue, Joshua. Sorry. Um. I was coming to the end of my point anyway. No, no, no not to worry. We, we, we can end yeah. that, no problem. No worries. Sorry to, to put you off. Uh, Jonathan, in, in your uh, critically acclaimed book, Angels with Dirty Faces, <laughs> if I may, uh, and I'm sure I can. Uh, Very much still available. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the footballing history of Argentina. You have a chapter entitled The Third Way, um, and it's not about um, Tony Blair, because that would be odd, it, it, but it was a way that it was about Bielsa and, and a way that was between the extremes of the styles of Luis Minotti and Carlos Bellardo. Can you expand and explain a little bit Yeah, so, I mean, Argentina is a country that loves a dichotomy. Um, (laughs) And politically, uh, culturally, there's a sort of mentality of dividing things into two schools and everything has to be placed in one of these two camps. And the idea of some kind of spectrum is, you know, is, is, is... just doesn't really exist. It's it's black or white. There's no real shades of grey, um, and that you know that's true in football. That you have uh, Menotismo and you have uh, Bilardismo. So Menotismo, named after Cesar Luis Menotti, who wins the World Cup in '78, and supposedly that football is very romantic and very creative and based in technical ability and individual skill, and that's obvious bollocks. I mean, Menotti's Argentina is really well organized. They're really fit. They're really tough. But, you know, they do play with an artistry and um, get a few decisions be, as well. But there we are. Certainly in 1978, they got a few decisions here. Not, not averse to that. Um, Bilardismo, um about toughness, about cynicism. Uh, yeah, Bilardo had played for, for Studiantes in the in, uh, late 60s when they won three Libertadores in a row. And yeah, Bilardo notoriously supposedly took pins on the pitch to stab opponents. Um, all all manner of underhand stuff. Um, and of course, that's, that's also bollocks because you know, when he wins the World Cup in 1986, he does it with Maradona, who is the greatest individual arguably the world's ever known. So yeah, the, 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 the slightly sort of artificial constructs. And Bielsa was constantly being asked, well, which, which are you? Which camp do you fall into? And the truth is he's somewhere in between because he believes in individual ability and he believes in um, one-on-one battles. But he also, for instance, uh, in, in these scenes at Newell's, every Friday they would uh, practice 120 attacking actions and 120 defensive actions. They were physically incredibly fit. I mean, Simon talked about you know, when you played Newell's, it's like being run over by a tractor. Um, and you don't get a level of fitness without working incredibly hard and doing very boring, repetitive work. So you know, he, he's, he's, he's taking the best of both and creating a, you know, a, a Blairite third way, if you will. <laughs> um, but, but the problem is that intensity is very, very hard to maintain. And that's, of course, been a... And Leeds fans will... <laughs> Keep on denying this, but it is true that throughout his career, until the magic of Yorkshire, um, Bielsa teams do tend to fade after a while. So they win the Apertura in 1991, but then through the whole of 1991, they only win eight games. So it doesn't matter in the Klausura in 1991 because they're already in the final. They then win that final. Uh, but the Apertura of 91-2, they are terrible. And that's when you get the story of the um, of the Baris Bravas, the Ultras, going to Bielsa's house demanding he resigns and him pulling a grenade on them. 
and saying, if you don't fuck off, I'm going to release the pin. <laughs> Which may or may not be true, but the fact it's widely believed to be true suggests the level of sort of intensity. I mean, I know a lot of people in Argentina are nicknamed El Loco, but mm. still, I think Bielsa really did live up to that, certainly oh, yeah. at this he, period he of earned, his career. He earned that properly, didn't he? Uh, that, yes, sorry, just that, that grenade incident, apocryphal or not, um, came after the first game in this Libertadores campaign. Yeah. So I think that's um, quite So they, they, they lose 6-0 to San Lorenzo. They lose 6-0 in, in their first game. They, they were going into this believing that they could win it after 1988 and believing that this was their time to win it and they get smashed 6-0 in the first game um, by another Argentinian team just to make it a little bit worse. Mm. Um, and then Bielsa supposedly pulls a grenade on his own fans. Um, and they, they, they then have a league they, game away in Santa Fe against Union. And that's when he has his long, dark night, long dark night of the soul, where he, he locks himself in the Conquistador Hotel in Santa Fe, which is a really, really bog average hotel. <laughs> yeah, I, went, I went to see it, think it's going to be sort of like, you know, this, this sort of great sacred site of Argentinian football. <laughs> and it's just a crap business hotel. It, it can't be more than like a three-star hotel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the 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 sign on the when I went this this is uh, how long ago ten years ago maybe not eight years ago something like that the sign outside is sort of it's a conquistador but it's like it's just a fat bloke in armor <laughs> and and the sign sort of it's it's a neon sign not all the letters quite work some of them are flickering mm. it's so sort of average um, but yeah he locks himself in the room there he closes the curtains he won't come out and he rings his wife Laura. Uh, he must be one of the bravest women in the world. I mean, being yeah. married to, or most patient women in the world, maybe is a better way of putting it. Being married to Bielsa must be incredibly difficult. Mm. And their their daughter earlier that year, had, had, or sorry, the previous year, had been had been very ill, where there was a serious risk she, she might die. And Bielsa says to Laura, I know this is not a rational thing to say, but I feel worse now, having lost this game 6-0, than I did then. And he yeah. then, and, and she sort of says, well, just keep going um, mm. and get off the phone, you weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he gathers the players in the bar and says, look, it's up to you. We can carry on down this road and we can play my football. And I think maybe going to a 3-3, 1-3 would work and you know, do the same thing, but more so. Or we can retrench and go back to something more orthodox. And the players decide, no, we'll, we'll, we'll follow you. And they, they draw nil-nil the next game, despite this <laughs> ludicrously attacking <laughs> formation. They draw nil-nil against Union, but they they then they only lose one more game in winning the the um, the Clausura that season. Yeah, that that nil-nil draw was the start of a twenty-six game unbeaten run, including uh, that went all the way up to this Libertadores final, I think. Yeah, um, and included a four-nil victory over the San Lorenzo team that had inflicted the the 6-0 defeat on them in the first game of the Libertadores. So the, yeah. the turnaround is quite stark. It is. And then done, done with the same players. That's the extraordinary thing. It's not that they suddenly bought three players or something. It's the same squad. He moves some of them to different positions, but he does it with the same players. He loves a tinker, that man. All right, let's go for a quick break, gentlemen, and then we'll talk about uh, that Copa Libertadores final itself. See you in a moment, everybody.
Welcome back to the greatest games on the Blizzard. So we talked a lot about Bielsa there and um, and Newells and, and so on. Uh, Joshua, where was Sao Paulo um, in the uh, footballing landscape in Brazil and, and South America? One can think that you know, huge sides, you know, big following, uh, won a number of international trophies uh, over the years. But if I'm right in saying this would be their first one, so where where were they at this moment in their history? Um. We talked a bit about Tele Santana, this being his his most successful spell as a manager. That wasn't a coincidence. Sao Paulo at this point were by far the most well-organised club in Brazilian football. Um, they built their own stadium in the late 60s and early 70s, which is a, a huge stadium, is still there. 105,000 was the capacity at this point in 92. It had been even bigger previously. Um, they have, they had a really good training ground um, with really high tech facilities for that that time, um, to the point where they had they installed a room where they had reduced oxygen where the players could train before they went to play in Bolivia in the group stage. Um, they employed a lot of sports scientists, uh, medical professionals, um, and and they really were ahead of. A lot of other teams in the world, I think, at this point, in, in terms of the, the um, certainly the medical side of the game and the preparation, the physical preparation. So Santana is coming into a situation which really favours him. Um, and they've put together this great team with, with players who've come up through the ranks, but also players who they've brought in from smaller teams mostly around Sao Paulo State. That, at that time, that's how a lot of Brazilian big clubs would work. They'd take the the big clubs in the state capital, would take the best players from the smaller clubs around the state. And the the best example of that is Hai, the, the, who goes on to become the Brazil captain, Socrates' brother, um, who they, they bring in from Botafogo de Sao yeah. Paulo and, and goes on to become their star player in this run, in this in this period. Yeah, for, just in case uh, anybody's uh, <laughs> not sure, you did use the local pronunciation for his name, but of course a lot of people here will call him Rye. Oh, that's yeah, how yeah. it is, and that's phonetically spelled. But you, you, no, you are absolutely right, Joshua. But um, the other big name in that team, Jonathan, was called Cafu. Mm. Uh, who, yeah, obviously goes on to to have a, a you know an incredibly successful career. Um, Strange to see him as a young man as well. Yeah, he's something you don't don't think about having having been young. But you know, he's the same player that that he you know he always was bombing forward from fullback and and uh, you're getting crossed into the box. I mean, yeah, the I guess Müller people might remember. Uh, Did he score he, the goal against Scotland in 1990 for Brazil to knock him out? I think he might. Uh, have done. He might have done. Yeah, he's, I, I, mean, I definitely remember him scoring in a World Cup. So. Mm-hmm. He I was mean, there in 1990. He got a couple. I'm pretty sure he'd knocked out Scotland. And, and Zechi, the, the, the keeper who, who was definitely yeah. in, in World Cup squads. I'm not sure he ever actually played in a World Cup. Uh, who I don't know what he does now, but I mean, I interviewed him. I don't know five or six years ago, and he 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 was running he was running a goalkeeping school. But the idea was it was not necessarily for elite goalkeepers. It was just anybody who wanted to become a better goalkeeper could could go along and pay him some money, and he'd he'd teach him. I like that. Yeah, yeah. learn from his just just. just you know, sit on the bench, most part, play a few games. It's a lovely old job. You know, this is how you do it, boys. You know, I think <laughs> it's fair. But I mean, obviously, Cafu was um, 
perhaps the most well-known defender on show, but it's a defender for the other side, Jonathan, you're probably more interested in. Maurizio Pochettino, centre-half for Newell's. Yeah, he, he, phenomenal hair. Man's just... <laughs> no, he's just sort of... He's got every stage of his career, he's got his hair right. He yeah. has exactly the right hair for uh, an Argentinian defender of the 90s, which is to mm-hmm. say a ridiculous mullet. And then when he becomes a manager, he has this you know, very luxuriant thatch, but much shorter, much more businesslike. So he, mm. the man who understands the um, uh, the semiology of hair. Yeah. And uh, despite his hair, uh, he obviously was a good player. I mean, he's player, very young, he? we should say. He's only, he, what, 20 it, in this game, I think? Quite possibly. Um, yeah, he is a lot younger, certainly. Uh, but Joshua, how important was he with... Um, with Bielsa's side, I mean, obviously, he, would, he must have learned a few things from him in terms of uh, the tactics and whatnot. He's gone on to have a great career as a manager. But what, what was, um, what was, how important was he? Where did he fit in here? Uh, well, he was one of the three centre halves. That's where he fit into the team. But um, I think you could probably see him as a symbol of how Bielsa had changed things. He'd come up. He'd been one of the players when Jonathan talked about going round the whole of the country scouting players and holding trials. He was one of the players that Bielsa found. He'd brought him to Newell's. He'd taken him through the ranks. And then he'd brought him, Bielsa had brought him into the, the first team as he became manager. And then Pochettino had established himself. But almost all of that early part of the, his success, he owes to Bielsa. He, he, he's very much... And, and because of that, he's very willing to follow Bielsa's ideas and implement what exactly what Bielsa wants. He's an impressionable young defender. Um, so, so I think you can see that in him, you can see some of the, the, the change that Bielsa is making on that team and the change that he's making in Argentinian football more widely as a result. Mm. And I think the thing with Pochettino that he was always very keen to stress at, at Tottenham was... I mean, he absolutely acknowledges his debt to Bielsa. He clearly loves Bielsa. Um, but he's also very clear to um, mark his difference to Bielsa. That, that he, you know, he, he feels he's developed that philosophy in a, in a slightly different way. So it, I think he always got, he got frustrated by the, by the, by the question. Because it, it cropped up every now and again. And particularly once Bielsa you know, sort of came to Europe and then, and then to, to England. Um, and it, because it would crop up, you know, in, in the in the middle of a sort of fifteen twenty minute press conference, he was never really able to to expand on it. So it it, it started out with him saying, "Yeah, of course, I've got this debt to Bielsa." And then people would go, "Oh, yeah, he's a Bielsa disciple." And then the next time you'd ask him, or the next time you'd be asked about it, he'd be, "Well, you know, I I don't entirely agree with him." And you never were able quite to get him to talk for about for sort of ten or fifteen minutes to explain precisely what he'd taken, precisely what he'd changed. But he's definitely of the school of Bielsa without being. Uh, you know, absolutely um, uh, a slavish follower in the way that, say, um, San Paoli. San Paoli is, yeah, thank you. So you're saying that Pochettino, he loves Marcelo Bielsa, but not as much as, say, Pep Guardiola does. (laughs) Well, but Guardiola was, you know, that that relationship is very different because Guardiola is obviously formed by Mm. Cruyff and by La Masia and, and by... The ideology of, of Barcelona, and then he goes to Bielsa to to have that challenged and and to yeah. to be slightly shaped and, and to learn from him. But it's it's not sort of the the underlying core of his philosophy in the way that it is for Pochettino. 
Yeah, but the the intensity of a conversation between Guardiola and uh, Bielsa. Oh, just, seven hours. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm amazed that sort of the furniture in that room wasn't combusting by the end. Kind of <laughs> extraordinary. But back to the Libertadores, if we may. Uh, Newell's, as you said, beats uh, San Lorenzo in the quarterfinal. Big win and a cathartic win, you, you, you could say. They had a mammoth penalty shootout against America de Cali in the uh, semi-final. 11-10 it finished on, on penalties to put them through. Um, well, that's amazing. I mean, America de Cali had two chances to win it and... and mm. Because the first first six on both sides were scored, then it's Pochettino who misses, isn't it? He's the first yeah. one to miss, and then America oh. de Cali miss. Bizarre then... penalty sends it over yeah. almost over the mountains that are yeah. behind <laughs> the stadium that are behind the goal. And then the yeah. next yeah. the next two penalties are also missed, and it ends up eleven ten on penalties. Mm. Sensational. Yeah. Twenty six penalties in total. Blimey. Yeah, absolutely incredible. So, yes. And in the final, they play Sao Paulo, of course. And, and they win the first leg 1-0, uh, Jonathan, yeah. in Argentina. So, you know, yeah, a bit If he penalty, I think it's fair to say. Um, I mean, it does strike Ronald Dow's arm, but it is down by his side. He doesn't really have much chance to get out of the way. I think you probably wouldn't be getting that in the Mumbi, but um, they do get it and they do, they do score it. And so, they yeah, they win that game 1-0. Yeah, and it's uh, 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 Barizzo who scores the goal. Uh, so they take a lead, a slender lead, uh, to Brazil. And it's it's a fairly intimidating atmosphere, Joshua, I think we could say. you know, that Certainly from the footage I've seen, it seems to be quite raucous and quite raw. Uh, and straight from the off, Sao Paulo are on the front foot because they're, they're chasing the tie 1-0. And they have their chances early on. Can we just go back a little bit? Is that all right? I, Please. There's a great story that I think is worth telling. When uh, uh, Newell's didn't have a game at the weekend before, Sao Paulo played Flamengo, but Newell's didn't have a game. So on the Sunday, they decided to travel to Sao Paulo and they were staying in a hotel very near the stadium. And they wanted to train at the stadium on, I think it was a Sunday night, it might have been the Monday night. Um, and... They believed, Bielsa believed that he had organised this and everything would be in place for them to turn up and train. They get there, the doors are closed. Um, there's a security guard sitting on the door who looks at this strange Argentinian man shouting at him um, and tells him to go away, essentially. And then a, a club vice president is called and he comes down and Bielsa's beside himself with rage. Um, and they say, and he says, uh, you can't go into the stadium because we can't turn the lights on. You can't train because we can't turn the lights on. We need the electrician to turn the lights on. And Bielsa says, well, I'll go and get him. I'll go to his house. Uh, and the club vice president turns to Bielsa and says, well, he lives in the favela. I'm not going in. You can if you want. Um, so, so they end up opening the stadium and just doing a few sort of fitness exercises in the dark. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think that's a sort of, it might be one of those um, classic South American stories that you hear of clubs trying to do things to, to knock the others, other clubs from their stride before the game. Um, it might've been a genuine confusion. Um, but I think the yeah, other but... thing about that story is Bielsa's thoroughness of preparation that he wanted to train under lights in the same conditions that the game would be played under. Yeah. Mm. 
But well, but there is one thing that he doesn't prepare for. Apparently, he didn't let his players take penalties in before the game. He wouldn't let his players um, uh, train penalties. I'm not sure if that's a sort of psychological thing. He didn't want them to to mentally prepare to lose. Um, and but but he he didn't let his players take penalties, whereas Tele Santana did prepare and he took his players out of Sao Paulo he took them to a, a sort of country retreat where they trained to try and take the pressure off them um, but yeah sorry going back to your your point it is a hugely raucous atmosphere 105,000 people um, the Morumbi is is quite a strange stadium when it's full it really 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 rocks um, genuinely physically like shakes this bare concrete that classic uh south american stadium architecture with the big open bowl um when it's not very full the noise just sort of dissipates into the air there's no roof there's no but when it is it's fantastic um even though the fans are quite far from the pitch and it really it really must have been i don't know if intimidating is the right word for yours they would have been used to similar atmospheres in in other places but it might must have been um a, a thrilling atmosphere to go into yeah and five minutes in jonathan cafu gets the ball in the corner um in in the newell's half and you see from this footage you know what a player he was back then and 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 how he liked to get forward and how good he was on the ball he goes past the first player and he he's all, he's in a good crossing position he thinks well I'll just dance past the second one as well uh, to get himself in, in an even better attacking position and he is just wiped out like there's no yeah, there's some tackles going in yeah 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 and and there was there was chat um when Pochettino came over um, and was manager of Southampton then obviously Tottenham Hotspur that you know liked a tactical foul or that all that kind of stuff was this Bielsa side particularly uh, foul happy no I don't think so I think that's just South American football at the time I think it was okay. really physical and right okay um, I mean I, I, God, when, when would it have been I think it must have been before Spurs played Barcelona in the Champions League and somebody had fouled, found a foul that Pochettino committed mm. on. Wasn't well, not that one on Michael Owen in the World Cup? That was no, disgraceful, was, Jonathan. Well, that wasn't Absolutely a foul, disgraceful. Was it? <laughs> you, you struggle to find a foul there. But no, the, the a horrendous foul he committed on a Barcelona player in a, when he was playing for Espanyol. Mm-hmm. And you know, somebody showed him the clip in the press conference, uh, <laughs> and his response was to laugh and go. Football was great in those days. You could do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you certainly could in this match because, uh, yeah, that was it's an absolute shocker. Uh, but the first half's interesting. I mean, Newell's they have their chances, you know, they, they as well. They hit the post. Uh, Sao Paulo have a. It's supposed really hard as well. It does. It's a. So Zamora goes through. I mean, it's basically a, a defensive area. Suddenly presented with the ball, runs on, mm. and absolutely smashes it off the inside of the post. Uh-huh. So I mean, so hard. It's it's actually quite hard to pick it up on the screen because it's I mean, obviously the footage is awful because it's South America in the early nineties. But mm. it, it's it's yeah, you have to see the replay to kind of work out how the ball's got to where it gets to. Oh, I did mm. anyway. Yeah, well, and Sao Paulo themselves they hit the bar. They have a penalty appeal turned down, which could look quite strong from what I was trying to to work out. But at halftime, it's 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 nil nil, and then into the second half, Newell's 
have a couple of chances themselves of a shot well saved and then Dimitri rounds the goalkeeper and sort of fluffs his lines a bit and that was an opportunity and you would have thought you know had they have gone one nil up I mean they would have been a very very strong um, position and then uh, after 65 minutes Sao Paulo are awarded a penalty Jonathan and that one looked quite questionable from the footage I mean the footage is just so bad it's very hard to work out what's gone on but a lot of bodies come together but a lot of bodies bodies go together and and certainly Mercedes the substitute make sure that the referee sees it and has to make a decision Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, Hay puts the penalty away, 1-0 on the night, and he was the captain of that side, of course, Joshua. You spoke a little bit about him in the first half, but how important was he to this Sao Paulo team? Hugely, both technically as a player and as a leader. Um, He's a really interesting character. He comes from, he's the brother of Socrates, the great Brazil captain of of 1982. And their family very much... um, Incentivize them to become intellectual uh, intellectuals as well as footballers. Socrates famously finished medical school before becoming a professional footballer. Um, Hai is is similarly engaging. Um, he, he talks incredibly incredibly well, um, and I think he was very persuasive as a leader for his teammates. And he's also an incredible footballer and a fantastic athlete. You can see in the video how, how much bigger and stronger and, and more physically imposing he looks than almost all of his teammates, certainly, and, and most of the, the Newell's players as well. Um, in this game, I don't think he had his best game, probably. He's not the most influential player. Uh, um, Cafu is, is, is the best player on the pitch by quite a distance. Um, but you wouldn't want that penalty going to anybody else. Probably you wouldn't choose any other player in Sao Paulo's history that you'd want more in that situation <laughs> with 105,000 people. Um, that pressure, that, that, that moment dealing with that, I think Hai is, is made for that, that moment. Mm. Um, yeah, well, that, that's... Strong praise indeed. Who wouldn't want any other player from their their club's history? But yeah, I, 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 but he scored it, didn't he? And that really kind of took the game to penalties. Of course, I mean, it, it, remarkable, really, Jonathan. That game finished just the one nil because there were chances and there were opportunities. Yeah, though I think once it had gone to one nil, it it sort of I think Neils were quite happy then to take it to penalties, and I guess they'd they'd won the. I mean, albeit in a twenty six penalty shootout, which you probably argue isn't that convincing but I think they sort of were well, maybe not happy to take it to penalties but they they, they became less attacking um, that, that you know without the goal advantage anymore they, they, they were concerned about the possibility of conceding a, a, a winner uh, and I, I presume this is still the am I right in saying this is still before away goals in the Libertadores final yeah so yeah so it's not like they could concede one like, score. No, one there, were, there were never away goals in the final. I think away yeah. goals were always scrapped in the final. They were there were away goals up to the semi-final stage, and then in the final, there were right, no okay. away goals. Um, yeah. So but yeah, so the game goes to penalties, and uh, Barito misses for Newell's. He, he it's a bad penalty. He's, he he screws it wide. And they were on the back foot straight from the off and would lose, of course, 3-2. They missed three of their five penalties. 
and uh, Sao Paulo would only need to score three of their four with Rai or Hai, should I say, uh, scoring the first one and, and Cafu getting the winning penalty, Joshua. Um, yeah, uh, Newell's look very nervous. I think it's worth yeah. saying that Bielsa gets sent off um, a few minutes after the, the, the penalty is given in the game. Bielsa just uh, turns into this frothing, raging <laughs> mess again. Um, and he's shouting ladron, ladron at the referee, thief, thief. Um, <laughs> and he gets sent sent off. Um, and the Brazilian commentators saying, no, typical, typical Argentinians. Um, and yeah. then right before the, the end of the game, when it's going to penalties, they try to bring on a, a reserve wingback called Gustavo Raggio who um, scored both of his penalties in Cali. And he's ready, he's stripped off, the fourth official's there with the board, and then the referee blows for full time. So their best, one of their best penalty takers, one of the first five penalty takers, doesn't get on the pitch. So all this contributes to this, this feeling of nervousness, which is really clear in the way that they strike the penalties, especially Berizzo. Who, who scored in the first leg? He scored that penalty that that gave them the draw over the two legs, um, and yeah, they, they're just they're really poor, really poor penalties. Um, the Sao Paulo ones aren't great. Hai's penalty is very, very good again. Ronaldo, um, who, who's the big centre half, smashes his penalty straight at Scaponi. Um, it's a strange one though, very because he yeah. smashes it down the middle. And normally that uh, normally they go in, yeah. Uh, or a goalkeeper maybe saves it with a trailing leg, but the keeper stands up to it. Yeah. you don't often see penalties like it, that. Well, again, he, he uses his fists. So yeah. the ball, again, the ball bounces miles away. It just looks really <laughs> odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both fists together and just sort of yeah. punches it like a have like a volleyball. Yeah. But Zechi was saying that Valdez uh, uh, de Moraes, one of the coaches at São Paulo, had you know had gone, had actually done early sort of video research. And had gone through all of Newell's penalties for over the previous few months, and um, he told him going to be before the game, you know, this player goes this way, this player goes this way, and Zetchi just obviously can't remember, and so they get a coach to stand in the centre circle and point to which way they're going to go, and he said four out of the five, the the research was right, but he only actually saves one penalty because two of them, you know, uh, think clips the outside the post. Yeah, he's wide. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Mendoza puts it over, and then Gamboa is his last kick, and that's what he saves. It's actually a really good save, low to his left. Yeah, 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 yeah. He has to go. All, it's, it's not far from the corner, and gets down to it and saves it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that's Zecchi's finest hour, and that's the that's the Libertadores one. It is, and uh, obviously Santana's you know vindicated or you know great victory for him, but. Bielsa, he, he loses the game, Jonathan, and, and left Newell's not long after that. Did yeah, they, but they, I, I think they knew that. I think they knew it was coming to an end because that's mm. the the, um, it's the front page of El Grafico has Gamboa, the man who misses that last penalty, and it's a, it, it, you know, him sort of head in his hands uh, crying. And the, the headline is something like the, the Night of a Thousand and One Tears. Um, so... Yeah, I, th- I think they knew it was the end of an era, and and then they fall apart really quickly. You know, they they, they they're in danger of relegation in '93 and '94 um, because without without Bielsa, Bielsa's mode doesn't work. Yeah, 
And as for Sao Paulo, uh, Joshua, they would they would defend their title in the Copa Libertadores the, the following year. Yeah, not only that, they went on to beat the Barcelona Dream Team twice that year, 4-0 in a friendly and then 2-1 in the Intercontinental Cup. And then the following year, um, they actually beat Newell's on the way to, to the Libertadores, retaining the Libertadores. And then they go and beat that that great Milan team in the, the Intercontinental Cup. Hence why you can make a legitimate claim for this this being the last South American club team that was the best team in the world. And they do play fantastic football. Yeah. You only see glimpses of it in this game. But but they really get to the essence of South, uh, of Brazilian football, I think, that, that like ideal of Brazilian football, which exists very, very rarely. Um, but that, that quick interchange of passes around the edge of the box. And they really are a fantastic team to watch. Um, after, after the uh, first Intercontinental Cup final, Johan Cruyff is asked about Sao Paulo and he says, if you're going to get run over, it's best to get run over by a Ferrari. Um, <laughs> so that, that's the, the, the esteem in which he held Tele Santana and this Sao Paulo team. Um, yeah. I think in Cruyff's, that's the way it's always reported in Brazil. I think he says Ferrari, but in Cruyff's uh, uh, autobiography, he says Rolls Royce. Anyway, yeah. an expensive automobile. <laughs> of course. Well, we'll leave the last words to Johan Cruyff then, because it's important <laughs> to remember that, yeah, of course, there was a lot of Bielsa chat and we're, we're, we've enjoyed him in English football. But this Sao Paulo team, they did win and it was a, a monumental achievement and a... And a, and, a, and a great victory for, for Santana. Well, Joshua, thank you very much for coming on the pod. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, for more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Myself and Jonathan will be back next week with another great game from the history of football. See you then.